Let's pray. So, Father in heaven, my heart's desire is for me and these brothers and sisters to go deep with you in understanding the role of prayer in the Christian life, the role of meditation on, in your word, the role of fasting, so that we learn to walk minute by minute and hour by hour in communion with the living God. Not treating the faith as a a code or a list of rules that we use our own willpower to follow, but a serving in the newness of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Lord, this is is a miracle life we're talking about here. It's a supernatural life. And so there's nothing I can do ultimately to make it happen. It's going to be you in these five hours we have together, or it's not going to be. And so I invite you, indeed I plead with you, to come and to give wisdom and to give life and to give boldness and to give clarity and to give a sweetness and authenticity and intensity to our fellowship with you in your word, by your spirit. Lord, if there's any in the room who doesn't have spiritual life, who've never been quickened, I pray that the spirit would so work upon them that they would find themselves wakening, as it were, for the first time, spiritually, to reality. To know you as the living, true God. To know you, Christ, as the risen Savior. To know you, Holy Spirit, as a distinct person in the Trinity. So guide me now. Help me to speak biblically and to be balanced and to have right affections. Don't let me say anything that would be false or unhelpful or hurtful or misleading. Be our portion, guide, in the interaction that we have together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In view of what I just said there about um, hour by hour walking and communion with God, I thought I'd begin with John Newton because I just, I'm still oozing Newton from the pastor's conference. And uh, so I, I just wrote down a new a new way to introduce this seminar. I used, last time I taught this, I had just lectured on John Patton, so I used him. In fact, I may use him tomorrow morning as well, but here's Newton. Uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, lived a couple hundred years ago, and uh, was a British pastor after he had been a slave trader and a sailor and a real slut. He called himself a wretch, you remember? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. And that was not an overstatement. There wasn't any gloss on his life. It was just, for him, a very sober understatement about what he'd become on the, on the boat for 13 years of sin. And on March 21st, 1748, on board the ship Greyhound, on his way home 
after being at sea a long time and having been treated like a slave on the edge of Africa for two years, a storm hit. He was asleep in the middle of the night. Water started to fill up his little hole there. And as he broke for the deck, uh, the captain was on his way down and said, Get a knife. And when he turned to get a knife, another man ran up before him and was immediately washed overboard. That was about one of about six instances of incredible providences in his life that made him think that he was appointed for something remarkable, which he was. So he went up and he, he manned the pumps for six hours. He took the helm for a long time. He was scared to death. You, you would say, if anybody should ever say literally that the hell was scared out of him, this would be it without any exaggeration because he had been absolutely dead to God and a blasphemer, as he called himself, all his, all his life from about age 10 on. And now he was awakened. However, he did not see himself as fully converted because he did not yet know what communion with God was. Let me read you his own words here. Though I cannot doubt that this change, so far as it prevailed, was wrought by the Spirit and the power of God, yet still I was greatly deficient in many respects. I was in some degree affected with a sense of my enormous sins, but I was little aware of the innate evils of my heart. So one defect, he thought, was that he didn't yet understand the innateness of his evil. See, a lot of people get saved thinking that they do sins, and that's the main problem. And they don't know that they are innately corrupt. They just don't understand their nature as a sinner. And, and you can learn these things later. You don't have to know everything up front when you become a Christian, but you need to know them. Well, that was a piece of his defect, and it might be a piece of yours tonight, that you just don't understand how bad you are. You know the kinds of things you do, but you probably have not gotten down to the root of where that comes from and what it says about you. And to see ourselves like that is a wonderfully gospel-liberating thing. It hurts bad. and uh, But that bad hurt will change your marriage. I know a lot of you aren't married, but that's where I live. To know how bad you are will change your marriage. It will really help you love your spouse the way you ought to. Because if you think you deserve a lot from her, you'll demand a lot from her. And when you demand a lot from her, it won't work. That, that's a. I had no apprehension of the spirituality and extent of the law of God, the spirituality, the goodness, the sweetness, and the the spirituality of the of the law of God. How extensive it reached into human life and what it demanded of us, or of the hidden. And I underline this because this is what we're about tonight or of the hidden life of a Christian as it consists in communion with God by Jesus Christ. And here's his meaning of that. A continual dependence on him for hourly supplies of wisdom and strength and comfort. 
That's what he didn't know. And some of you tonight don't know that. You are trying to live the Christian life and you don't experience that. Continual dependence on him for hourly supplies of wisdom and strength and comfort. And that list could go on there. The best way to find out how to finish that sentence is to read the Psalms. Read them every day. This was a mystery of which I had yet no knowledge. I acknowledged the Lord's mercy in pardoning what was past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution to do better for the time to come. In other words, he didn't understand future grace. This is why I wrote that book, Living by Faith in Future Grace, because I, I didn't understand it for a long time, and I think a lot of Christians don't get it. They don't understand the, the, the futurity of grace and how, how it's grace that's going to help me get through this seminar tonight. And if I don't lean on that grace tonight, you won't benefit from this seminar. Not if I have anything to do with it. If, if I lean on me and my resources, my intelligence, my understanding, my preparations, and not on grace, then the Holy Spirit will be choked off. There won't be the flow. Living by faith in future grace is what he didn't get. And it's the essence of Christianity. Or at least it's a, let's not overstate it, it's the key part of the essence of Christianity. The password look here and the pardon is crucial, but... He depended chiefly upon his own resolution to do better for the time to come. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer in the full sense of the word. Till a considerable time afterwards. This is really significant. There's a big scholarly debate, I guess, among Newton people, Newton scholars, as to whether he was a Christian or saw himself as one at the uh, time when the storm hit or six years later when he began to come under the influence of George Whitfield and John Wesley and uh, others in the Great Awakening at that time in England because he was on a boat as a slave trader. He, he was the captain of a vessel that traded slaves for six years after this experience. And uh, the it, it, it has hurt the cause of Christianity for that to be made known because you say, oh, yeah, right, get converted and deal in slaves. Right, big, that's good Christianity. Thank you, no, I won't have any, I don't care for that. But Newton himself, I don't think, dated the genuineness of his conversion until six years later. Later in his life, he wrote a whole essay on his remorse and horror at having dealt in the slave trade. One more thing from Newton, um, his devotional life. Just to give you a glimpse, I know that I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's okay. I just want to give you a taste of what, what's coming. Sometime between 1752 and 1756, he was born in 1725, so this is right around when he was um, 25 years old or so. On a morning in April, he wrote in his diary, Prayed over a part of the eighth Romans. In other words, he, he, his devotions consisted that day in praying over a part of the eighth chapter of Romans. How? How did he do it? In a way of paraphrase with some readiness. 
So one of the things I hope we pick up in this course is learning what it is to pray the Word. So as you read through Romans 8, you paraphrase it into prayer. That's what he's saying he did here. So, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Pause. Eyes closed. Heart directed to God. Oh God, thank you from the bottom of my heart that there's no condemnation to me. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for the cross. Let me taste it. Grant me to experience as I begin this day that I'm not a condemned person. I'm a loved and accepted person. Pause. Read. That's what he did. Only he may have spent longer. I don't know. But do that. Learn to do this. I, I frankly, I'll just admit right off the bat, I'm a lousy prayer without the Bible. I can't pray long without the Bible. I can't pray with significance without the Bible. It feels insignificant to me. All right, he's, 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 he's paraphrasing Romans 8. I greatly fail in the duty of meditation and am forced to use some artifice with myself to do it at all. Hmm. What does he mean by artifice? Here's what he means. Thus, sometimes I turn them into a prayer form, his meditations, Sometimes I suppose myself in imaginary conversation. Another artifice he uses. Sometimes that I am called upon to speak to a point. So he imagines himself having to speak on a verse in Romans 8 and then he starts talking to his imaginary audience, I guess. Without something of this sort, I am not able to engage myself to attend with any fixedness of thought. And with it, alas... How seldom I would remember to pray for grace and direction in this matter that my delight may be in the law of God to meditate therein day and night. So here's a man who's on his way, just like we're all on our way, and you see his struggle and his sense of inadequacy when it comes to his own devotion and and Bible reading. Well, so much for Newton. You want to raise any question at that point or make a comment about Newton? Yeah, go ahead, Marlon. Yeah, they were definitely written after faith. That last one was written, however, during that six-year period where he wasn't even sure he was a believer. So that was 52 to 56. The, the, the storm happened in 48. So he was awakened out of absolute wretchedness when he was 23 years old in 1748. We're talking uh, um, what, four years, four to... Four to six years after that, so near the end of that period. So he's not a very long, mature believer at that point. The first one was written later as a mature, as a mature believer. Um, well, here's the, in partial response to your question though, the people whose writings that we tend to quote from are people whose writings lasted precisely because they were wise people. Not everybody's wrote, and not everybody was as wise as an Edwards or an Owen or a Newton. And uh, God has just given preciously to the church uh, a few dead saints that we house in our bookstore. <laughs> That's what it's called, books by a bunch of dead guys and a few live ones. 
And uh, they are a treasure. They're a treasure to the church. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and chapter 13, make it real clear that we ought to love them, read them, study them, imitate them, and not idolize them, nor consider them perfect. In fact, the biggest, one of the biggest mistakes you could make in this course would be to take uh, tips you hear from me or one of these fellows and uh, make that some kind of law or some kind of absolute or some kind of ideal, when in fact, here are two, two reasons you shouldn't do that. One is that very likely, if I were to tell you what I do in my devotional life now, I wouldn't be doing it in five years from now. I'd be doing something different. And, and you would have set it up as the thing to do, and then, lo and behold... If you heard this seminar in five years, you say, oh, don't you do that anymore? I say, well, I haven't done that for a long time, but that's what was really fruitful in those days. So don't idealize or absolutize things that are not explicitly biblical. And the other reason is just because uh, it's uh, we're all fallible and even what we're doing now may not be the best thing to do. You need to find uh, the biblical application of truth in your life and how you do it, where it fits in your day and how long it should take you and, and how you mingle prayer in the Word and so on. Any other comment or question before I jump into communion with God? Now, what I want to do in these overheads that I'm going to put up here first is... Talk about communion, Bible texts that point towards communion with God, how to do it in His Trinitarian uh, reality. And so we'll begin with, with passages that promise that each of the persons of the Trinity will be given to us for our own personal intimacy and experience with them. So we'll start with the Holy Spirit here, John fourteen sixteen to 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him, because He abides with you, and will be in you. I think that last clause there is a virtual identification uh, in essence, if not personhood, of Christ and the Spirit. He is with you. He will be in you. I will give you a helper and I will give you myself in giving you the helper. I am with you now. I will be in you, which is why he said, it's better that I go away. While Jesus was here on earth, he was limited in space and time because he was incarnate in a body. When he went back to the Father and poured out the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, he's not limited anymore. And everybody everywhere in the world who will have it may have a personal, intimate experience of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. It says in Ephesians 4.14, Paul prays that uh, Christians would be strengthened in the inner man through the Spirit 
according to the riches of your glory, and that Christ might dwell in your heart by faith. How, how quickly and easily we pass over a sentence like that, usually dealing with children. You know, invite Jesus into your heart, or Jesus lives in your heart. And don't realize what a stupendous thing we are saying. I mean, he made the universe. He upholds it by the word of his power. He conquered death and hell. He commands demons. He commands winds and waves and they obey him. And we say, this one dwells, kat oikeo, inhabits, lives in as a house, our that is stunning, unspeakable reality. That would cause a man like John Owen to write 300 pages. You, know, you, you talk, Marla, about, about these old saints. One of the reasons these old saints left deposits of books behind is because when they said a sentence like that, they stayed on it for days and days and days, and they turned it and turned it and turned it like a... a a diamond with infinite number of facets and would not stop looking. They would not put it down. They would not just say, oh, I see that, put it down, give me another nugget for tomorrow. They just turned it and turned it and looked and looked and wrote and wrote and thought and thought and prayed and prayed and applied and applied. They were so vigorous in the way they handled spiritual truth. And that's communion. That's that's getting at what communion with with God the Holy Spirit is so he's given to us here the promise of the father hebrews 13 5 and 6 make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said and now this is a quote from the old testament that's why i'm treating it as god the father even though in the context here it, it could flow over into the lord christ because i know that sometimes Old Testament quotes that refer to the Father or God in the Old Testament do refer to Jesus in the New, but it is a quote here. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? So here we have the Father promising, I will never forsake you. God the Father Almighty speaks to His children, I will never desert you. I will never forsake you. Therefore, communion is possible. It's hard to commune with people far away. We do have telephones and email and faxes and so on. But that's different than sitting together over a table, looking somebody in the eye, and God knows that distance is possible. You know, you can send a telegram to God on the other side of the universe with your prayer if you want to conceive of it that way. But it's different to say, I'm there. He wants to, he wants to communicate that to us. Another text on that, 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. The church is the temple of the living God. He walks among us. 
This is one of the reasons. I'm not going to make a big deal in this course, and it's one of the defects of the course about corporate communion with God. I have a whole seminar on worship, especially corporate worship. And here I'm mainly thinking about our personal communion with God. But I do want to underline the fact that uh, this temple of God is sometimes... Uh, spoken of as our bodies being the temple of God and sometimes the body of Christ, the church being the temple of God. We are the temple, not temples. We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. So when the church gathers, when we're gathered here right now, under the Word, by the Spirit, in faith, There is a moving of the Spirit here in this room different than when you're at home alone. Not necessarily better, but different. And to have both of them is precious. God moves when His people gather among them, walks among them, does things among them, manifests Himself among them in ways that He doesn't when we're alone with Him. And you'll hear when I use this text from John Patton, tomorrow morning, how precious the individual is. And I just want to make sure you you see that the corporate is precious as well. So the Father has promised to be with us. The Spirit is to be with us. One more on the the, uh, Father. Isaiah 41.10 Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will surely help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So here's God assuring the covenant people of God with you, with you. Your God strengthening you, helping you, upholding you. And I'm going to argue in just a few minutes, but I'll say it here in advance, that the way you experience communion with God in a promise like that is by believing it. The Holy Spirit moves in and through the Word to make the Father personally known and experienced when we read that as the very personal Word of God to you. I don't know if I'll get to it, but uh, I use Aptat as my own way of of uh, drawing near to God and uh, counting on Him to draw near to me before I preach, before I teach, like now or Sunday morning. APTET stands for admit that you can't do anything without God. P, pray for His help. T, trust a promise. And A, act. And T, thank Him for having helped you. A-P-T-A-T, APTET. So when I come to that T, trust... So I'm bowing in the front pew. One of these guys is reading the text on Sunday morning, and I'm in my head doing aptat. I can't do this without you. I pray for the gift of love. I pray for the gift of humility. I pray for the gift of balance. I pray for the gift of biblical faithfulness. I pray for a prophetic gift that penetrates to the heart. I pray for liberty of tongue so I don't stumble over my words. I pray for memory so I can remember what I've prepared. I pray for love to abound for these people and whatever else the Lord brings to my mind to ask for at that moment. And then the next one is now. Will you trust me, John? You've just asked me to do a lot of things. 
Are you just going to walk away from that request and kind of cross your fingers and, well, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't? Or are you going to trust me? Now, what warrants the trust at that point? And the answer is promises, which is why you have to have a stock of them in your head. Or, if you don't have a good stock in your head, why you have to get up early in the morning and get one into your brain. And then if your brain is not real good, to carry around a little sheet. So this is my sheet from this morning. So I, I read a whole slug of chapters in, in Exodus this morning, trying to catch up. I'm behind. And uh, I saw so much that my, my brain at age 55 uh, tends to have a, a leak. It, it's a leaky bucket. And so I, I put a lot in in the morning, but about 9 o'clock, what did I read? <laughs> I know I read the Bible this morning. <laughs> Can't remember a thing I read. So I carry around these little sheets, which is why I have to work real hard at memorization. So I wrote down 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 observations, little bullet points on my little sheet, so that any time during the day I could pull out my little sheet to fight back unbelief. One of them was that beautiful picture of getting to Mara. Mara means bitter in Hebrew. And the, the water is called Mara because it was bitter. And the people got all bent out of shape with Moses and God and angry. And, uh, and God comes down and instead of just wiping these people out, He makes the water sweet for them. Sweet. Not just drinkable, but sweet. Is that the way you treat people who grumble at you? Why did you do this? Why did you get here on time? Why did you put it that way? Why did you write that? Why did you do this? Can I make your water sweet? How can I make your water sweet? That ministered to me. That rebuked me. That, that assured me that I have a father like that. That told me how to go down to talk to Noel and Barnabas and Talitha. That gave me a clue about something you might need tonight. So I just lingered over that for a while and communed with my bitter turning into sweet God. How many providences have you met in your life that were bitter? And now looking back, He did something sweet for you. Painful, but sweet. The Son. We've talked about the Spirit, the Father, now the Son. A lot of texts on the Son because He's the center of everything now that He's come into the world. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That was John Patton's favorite promise, and I'll give you some stories tomorrow morning about that. I will be with you always to the end of the age. You know, the Bible is a very thick book. And a very daunting, a very discouraging book in the sense that uh, if you feel like, and this is usually Satan talking, I've got to know this whole book, I've got to memorize this whole book, or I've got to know what's on every page in this book before I can really be a, you know, a, an effective witness or a sin-conquering Christian. Well, that's just a lot of baloney. And here's one of the biggest evidences for it. Nobody in the first century had the whole Bible. And they turned the whole world upside down. 
We've got the whole Bible, which means we've got a lot of places we can go and we should be reading the whole thing through every year or something like that. But you need to pick out some things that are like dynamite to you that you can go back again and again. And this would probably be one of them mingled with verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Verse 20, I'll be with you everywhere. I mean, just picture yourself now. Just in the middle of the day, something horrible and unexpected has come up at work. You're going to have to confront somebody or you just got a devastating phone call or something and the bottom absolutely drops out of your life or your job or a relationship or something and, and, and everything in you feels like, I can't do this. I cannot handle this. I am over. I'm history, emotionally or physically. Now, what are you going to do at that moment? At that moment. See, that's where you find out how to be a Christian. When things are just kind of rolling along, you, all the natural resources are holding you up. Your health is holding you up. Your friends are holding you up. Your income is holding you up. Everything's holding you up. Who needs God, right? Wrong. He's doing all those things, but you don't feel it. It's when the bottom falls out that you find out whether you're leaning on Him or not. So at that moment, you have to have a few of these. You have to at that moment say, okay, you said you'll never, ever leave me and you'll be with me always to the end of the age. And you said all authority is yours in heaven and on earth. So you have authority over this situation, over my little weak heart, and you'll never leave me. And so I count on you. Come through. Here we go. And there may be trembling and there may be shaking and there may be sweaty palms and a dry throat and tears pushing up from behind the eyeballs as you move into this, whatever happened. But this you can bank on. The Son will be there to be enjoyed, communed with. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. This is spoken to Christians, not non-believers. We use it as an evangelistic verse, and it's true as an evangelistic verse, but it's not in the context of an evangelistic verse. It's an intimacy verse. It's a communion verse. He's inviting the church to commune with Him. He's saying, uh, church, Bethlehem, uh, you've started to get all lopsided in some of your emphasis. Uh, you're forgetting me. Knock, knock, knock. And then we swing the door wide and, and He'll always come. He'll always come in. And the picture he has is eating. I love to eat with people I love. Now, we ought to eat with people we don't love too. Real clear in Luke 14, invite over the people that can't invite you back and you'll be rewarded in the resurrection. So don't only eat with the people that are your close friends. But that's appointed too. Sweet. And one of the best things you can do with your friends is eat with them, right? We love to just eat with them. Because... There's something about sharing a meal that you're relaxed. I don't know what the dynamic of that is. Lots of different appetites are being satisfied or enjoyed at the same time. But that's what Jesus wants to do with us. He wants to dine with us. Eat with us spiritually. Matthew 18.20 For where two or three have been gathered together in my name... I am there in the midst. There's that corporate dimension again of being there in a special way. 
So now, those are texts on the three persons of the Trinity offering themselves to us for our enjoyment of their communion here and now, close, not far. So let's talk about our fellowship being with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fellowship or communion. I'm using those two words almost interchangeably. 1 Corinthians 1.9. So texts that now talk about fellowship or communion with these persons of the Trinity. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God is faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. So there it is. We should live in fellowship with Jesus. If you enjoy fellowship with your close friends, you should enjoy something like that with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. That word communion there is koinonia. It's the same word as the other one, fellowship. Koinonia. The fellowship of the Holy Ghost. So you've got fellowship with the Son and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So we have two texts here referring to communion or fellowship of or with or in the Spirit. The Spirit should become a real living person to you that you talk to, fellowship with. 1 John 1, 3-7 What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father. Now we have the third person of the Trinity. And the Son, but here's the Father. So we have fellowship with the Son, 2 Corinthians 1, nine, Fellowship with the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 13.14 and Philippians 2.1 and 2. And now fellowship with the Father. This is why uh, this book, Communion with God by... Owen is built around the persons of the Trinity. He has long sections on fellowship with God as one and fellowship with each of the persons of the Trinity, which is really unique, I think. I don't know another book like it. And with his Son, Jesus Christ, these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. And extending it to others now, he's making his own joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So fellowship with God has a very definite moral effect. And if it doesn't, it's not true, it's not real. But if we walk in the light, 
as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And I wonder who that includes. Is it only horizontal? You and me, or John and the people he's writing to, one another? Or is it also vertical? If we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And I'm inclined to think that since the fellowship has been spoken of here is with the Father and with the Son, and then he broadens it out to have fellowship with the church, this one another includes both the vertical and the horizontal. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So now we've seen a text that show that we're to have fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Father. So the first set of texts were about the Spirit, the Son, and the Father coming to us, making themselves available to us and intimate with us. The second set of texts that we just looked at was about what we do about that, namely fellowship with them, commune with them. Now, how is this fellowship experienced through the promises of God. Now, here's a long quote from Owen. How is it experienced through the promises? Because that's the way I think we experience fellowship with God. We have His Word, and His Word becomes His own intimate communication to us, especially the promises. So let's read Owen's way of understanding it. The life and soul of all our comforts lie treasured up in the promises of Christ. They are the breasts of all our consolation. Who knows not how powerless they are in the bare letter, even when improved to the uttermost by our considerations of them and meditation on them. In other words, if just left to ourselves without the Spirit, even considering the promises, is going to be powerless. As also how unexpectedly they sometimes break upon the soul with a conquering, endearing life and vigor, these promises. Here faith deals peculiarly with the Holy Ghost. It considers, faith considers the promises themselves. So we're looking at the promises looking at them, looks up to Him, the Holy Spirit, waits for Him, considers His appearances in the Word, in the Word, depended on, in the Word, depended on. Look at that. His appearances in the Word, depended on. That's a very profound statement. The Holy Spirit makes His appearances in the Word trusted. The trusted Word. What does He mean? Let's see if He unpacks that for us. Owns Him in His work and efficacy. No sooner doth the soul begin to feel the life of a promise. Warming His heart. Relieving, cherishing, supporting, delivering from fear, entanglements, troubles. 
But it may, it ought to know that the Holy Spirit is there, which will add to his joy and lead him into fellowship with him. Now, this is why Owen is so um, worthy of our attention. I think I probably had to read that ten times in order to get what he was saying here. Because what, what he's saying is, you don't do an end run around the Bible or around the Word in trying to commune with the Spirit. You don't shut your Bible, go off in the woods and say, now Spirit, make yourself known to me. And hope for a falling down or laughter or fluttering eyelids or shaking knees or sweaty palms or palpitating heart or, or some kind of manifestation. Those may come at any time in life when the Holy Spirit moves in power. You can do anything He wants with us physically. But those things are absolutely negligible when it comes to real communion spiritually. Because they can be there without the Spirit and you can have the Holy Spirit without those things. So they are not the essence. The essence is this experience of the living person in His speaking. And His conception is that when the soul... Pondering the Word, considering the promises themselves, looking up to the Spirit, waiting for Him, considering His appearances in the Word depended on. So here you are. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll hold you up. You, you focus on that and you say, God, help me believe it. Holy Spirit, come. Enliven this promise. Arrive here. Apply it to me. Make me to hear it as though you are standing here speaking it to me yourself. And as you see that becoming true and strengthening you to do what you have to do, witness, talk to somebody, whatever, you know He's here. You know He's here. That's what He says here. No sooner doth the soul begin to feel the life of a promise, warming His heart, relieving, cherishing, supporting, delivering from fear, entanglements, troubles. But it may, it ought to know. The soul may, the soul ought to know that the Holy Ghost is there. The evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit is the vitality and the life and the power of the Word changing you to have freedom from entanglements and fear and warming your heart and relieving you from anxieties and creating a cherishing in you and supporting you. These are the sweet things that we long for and we know He's there and if we know He's there then this will add to our joy in the Word and lead us in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. You want to ask a question about that or make any comment about that dynamic right there? This is, this is a spiritual thing we're talking about here. And unless you've ever tasted it, it may sound very strange, very foreign. And if you haven't, you should just ask. You should ask that as you read the Bible, the Holy Spirit would minister the Word to you in that way, would come to you sometimes around Bethlehem I hear people praying and I think we've all got it from the same place. And There's a text in 1 Samuel where it talks about God uh, stood forth from His Word to Samuel. Stood forth from His Word. So we hear, I hear people praying, Oh Lord, stand forth 
from your word, in your word, by your word. Any question or comment on this particular? It is intangible. Good question. Person, maybe maybe you're implying person things in person that I'm not. By person, I don't mean body. I don't mean physical. But I do mean personality. I do mean will. I do mean conviction. I do mean joy. I mean a, a being that has the capacities to experience personal dynamics. Relate to somebody with a mind and with a heart. You just all over the New Testament, you find evidences that the Holy Spirit is not it. It's not it. For example, in Ephesians, it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed to Christ. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. What? It's neuter in many cases, but in some cases it's not. The only reason it's neuter is because in Greek the word pneuma is neuter. Wind is neuter. The, the gender in Greek is not female or male specific. Trees can be masculine or a boat can be feminine or, you know, gender in Greek doesn't dictate whether something is personal or not. What, what's remarkable is that, I don't have the text right here in my hand, but in two or three places in John's gospel, the neuter pneuma spirit is followed by a relative pronoun in the masculine which breaks the grammatical rule in order to make clear that John thinks of him as person. At least I think that's that's John's point. Yeah, and we need to we need to check and see whether that's one of those cases. It may well be, it probably is, where the who is is a masculine relative pronoun, whereas there is a neuter relative pronoun that you would use if you wanted to be grammatically consistent, which it doesn't use. Um, here's, here's something I'd recommend. If that's an issue for different ones of you, the personality, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, get Wayne Grudem's big blue book on uh, systematic theology and uh, go to the section on the Holy Spirit. He'll have a whole section on the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Was there a, a hand back there? Jason? Okay. The question is, will God, does God commune with us apart from His Word? Um, Got to be really delicate, I think, in how you say yes or no to that. If I, if I say no, I think of a text like the heavens are telling the glory of God and the firmament declares His handiwork as though, and I don't think it's as though, it's real, you're to walk out tonight into this bitter cold and you're to think of a text like who can stand before His cold? from Job 38. And you're to sense God's doing this. This is God's cold. And you're to look up into those skies and say, if you see a star tonight, well, if it's cold here, between here and there, it's really cold. And then you're to remember that night unto night pours forth knowledge 
And so knowledge is to be streaming from those stars into your head about God. And as it comes to you about God, you're to commune with Him. Now, but right at that point, I want to almost say, no, you won't commune with God and you shouldn't try to commune with God apart from His special revelation in Jesus Christ because you won't get that. You will not have any genuine spiritual communion with God if you don't have a relationship with Him. And you can't get a relationship with Him any other way than through Jesus Christ. And you can't get Jesus Christ any other way than through the Gospel, which is the Word. And so we have to be nuanced and careful when we talk about, yes, there are revelatory works of God that are not in the Bible, like nature, like our own consciences, And yes, every time God reveals something of Himself, there should be a receiving of it on our part, a rendering back of proper acknowledgments and affections, which is a communion. It's a something's coming to me from God, something's going back to God from me, and that's what I mean by communion. But all of that is possible because He's not my enemy. He's not, wrath isn't resting on me. It's been removed by Jesus and now I'm a son and I can have access to a father so that what is revealed to me there can become the stuff of friendly communion rather than the stuff of condemnation. So, yes and no is the answer to that question with those qualifications. Yeah, Donna. Right, and and that's where a lot of people are living, and all of us live there from time to time. Uh, I say, I mean, Lord, what should I say? And what he brings to my mind right now <laughs> is Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the miry pit, out of the bog. He put my feet upon a rock. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. But here's the question. How long did I wait? Don't fly over those first words. I waited for the Lord. That's David talking. I remember about 19 years ago, standing right here, right in this spot, pews, Carpet, no junk in the balconies. About 200 people here on a Sunday night. I'm a brand new pastor. And my first series on Sunday night, or somewhere near the front end, was Summer Psalms, I called them. I think it was my first summer here. Summer Psalms. And when I got to Psalms 40, I entitled it, In the Pits with the King. I still remember the title. I hardly remember any of my sermons. But I remember that one. You know, some sermons you remember because of the resonance you get from your people. And that one got a, struck a chord. Because everybody's in the pit. Lots of the time. That's where we live. Lots of the time. That's why the Psalms are the most favorite book for most people. Because the Psalms are so utterly, blatantly realistic about the frustrations of life and the pain of life. And David, who was a man after God's own heart, says... I'm in the pits. I'm in this slimy bog. It's like quicksand. It's like this sluggy mud. And how long? I wait, I wait, I wait. And God came. So the first thing I would say is, 
You're not alone. I get there too. David was there. Don't throw in the towel on God. Be patient. I cried. It's the second thing I'd say. I cried to the Lord. I cried to the Lord. God, don't leave me here. Please, have mercy upon me. Open the eyes of my heart. Third thing I might say is Psalm 32. Is there any concealed sin? Anything that God wants you to get out? Because it says in Psalm 32, I hid my sin, I did not confess it, and my bones rotted within me. I confessed my sins and I was like a free and so I would probe a little bit if this person, you know, gave me their time and their trust and their life and I would say, talk to me about the rest of your life, not just your devotions. Talk to me about the way you treat friends, the way you act at work. And I mean, I, I watch some people and they're like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I'll give you an example. I, I, uh, I know a guy who's here every Sunday. Every Sunday for forever. I can tell you where he sits every Sunday morning. Every time I talk to him, he's like a little teddy bear here. And I've called him at work. What are you? Oh, hi, Pastor. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. There's a disconnect here. So if he came to me and said, I'm not getting anywhere in my devotions. I said, well, you know, I think there's a bigger issue here. Bigger, some bigger life issues here maybe. And I wonder if you are wanting relief from your own sins when you're not relieving anybody at work. You're making life really hard for people at work. There's a blockage. The, the sweetness that you want is not flowing through you. It's just getting blocked about 8.30. You're a bulldog to everybody. You need to soften up. Sweeten up. Come on. Get the clogs out of the way. Something's got to flow through you. When it starts flowing through you, more will come into you. So that would be one thing I'd say. Check check your life for sins. A, third, a fourth thing. I had really got to stop because I can go on for 14 points here. I have a little paper online. I mean, go on. There's What's the name of that document? How to... Yeah, how to help people be, how to help your people be satisfied. You can go into desiringgod.org and read all 14 of them. This is the most common question I get asked on. Everywhere I go, if I talk about Christian hedonism and being happy in God and triumphing over sin and people, yeah, everywhere just raise their hand and say, but that's not where I live. How? 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 And that, that's why I'm doing this seminar. That's what this seminar is about, is the how question of the Christian life. And so there'll be more, uh, but um, just be encouraged for you and for all those that you're speaking for and for me that uh, we're all there from time to time and we have seasons of life and seasons of darkness. I can, I can point to, I've been in the pastor now for 20 years and then before that other, other kinds of things. There have been lean seasons and there have been vital and lively seasons. And uh, I'm just a very fortunate person that I'm surrounded by encouragers. I got another email today. And basically, it was a response to the pastor's conference we had, plus something else I'd done down at Moody, uh, 
whenever it was, a day or two ago. And basically, the last line said, Please, John Piper, don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Said about five times right across the bottom. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Don't ever give up. Because this person just considers me, you know, with my books and my speaking as a sitting duck for Satan to bing, get another one of those, you know, big shot pastors and bring reproach on the, on the whole church of Jesus Christ. And he just pleaded with me, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Don't make shipwreck of your faith. Hang in there. And so when you have a lot of people around you exhorting you and calling you to account and, and correcting you and, and encouraging you, that's a great help. So I'd be a fourth or fifth thing. I'd say, who's in your life helping you? Anybody helping you with this problem? You, you've told it to me now, but I want to say, who, who else do you talk about this with? Who, because it says in Hebrews 3, 13, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. Everybody is falling. The Christian life is like swimming in a river. The current is leading to hell. Heaven is at the headwaters. Anybody who coasts goes backwards. When you get tired, who grabs you? I was a water safety instructor when I was a teenager and worked for camps. And I was, I taught, I was taught how to get people out of the water when they were dead and when they were fighting. You, you swim up to them, they're flailing around, they're gonna drown you if you get them, right? They're gonna latch around your head and drown you. So, before you get there, you go down, you learn how to take their knees, switch them around, come up to the top, give them a good hook around the neck, one arm under here, one arm under the neck, they're falling all around, but you got them under control, you got one arm free. And a scissors, and a scissors kick. And you take them home. That's the way we should, so here I am, I should do that for you, or somebody should. So there's people in your life that are drowning right now. Drowning in sin, drowning in indifference, drowning in lust, drowning in greed, drowning in sadness and depression and discouragement and overwork and bad management of their lives. And your main job is not to, not to criticize them, but to go in there and and dive down our knees so they don't drown you with them. Switch them around, come up, give them a good headlock. Say, we're going to go talk about Jesus. <laughs> Enough of Owen, I suppose. Yeah, go ahead. No, it's okay. Is what the presence of the Holy Ghost? Oh, I believe it is. I mean, you can't, you can't equate the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, with any particular warm feeling. But if other things that warrant that assumption are present, you can. Let me just restate what, what he said, because I know all of you couldn't hear. Um, he was told once upon a time in his Christian life that just the sheer raw act of praying was faith, not that it was an experience you had in praying and that he's come to see that that's not the way to look at it. And I would agree with that, that that's not the way to look at it. Uh, and now, uh, the longing is that in and through prayer, there be a rising sense of, now I am going to use my own words, you tell me, 
confidence that God is for you, that He's a Father who's hearing you, that He loves you, that He's going to be there for you to do what you ask or something better, and that you want that to rise. And if it does, is that the work of the Holy Spirit? And it is. It is. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. It's it's the rising sense that God's our Father. We, We say... Abba, Father, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. When we cry from the heart, genuinely, Abba, Father, and trust Him, that's the Spirit enabling us, bearing fruit or bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And so, yes, I would say, yes, that's the work of the Spirit in your life. And you can at that moment enjoy communion with Him. And when that's absent, doubt tends to creep in. And, well, it should. I mean, it's inevitable. If you don't have faith, you're doubting. But now, this issue of faith, let's just make a little comment here. I don't mean that you must be absolutely assured that what the very thing you ask for and the very timing that you're asking for is going to happen or you have no faith. I think there is a kind of faith. There is a kind of faith that is granted like that from time to time. A gift of faith. I don't know that I've ever experienced it. Which may be just an indictment of my own level of piety. I asked my father, who's a very godly evangelist, uh, have you ever experienced that kind of faith where when you prayed, you knew you had it. The specific thing in the time when you had it. And he said, Maybe five times in 50 years of ministry. I said, give me an example. And he said, well, one time I was in wherever, Youngstown, Ohio or somewhere, uh, doing a crusade. My father's an evangelist, you know, a little mini Billy Graham. And... uh a church or two would come together and there'd be 100, 200, 300 people for his nightly preaching and uh, he'd preach the gospel and nothing was happening he was discouraged out of his mind as a young man and uh, he got on his knees he said one night and he said Lord I've got to have a breakthrough I don't know that I can keep on in the ministry of evangelism if you don't work through me if I don't have a gift then I can't do it if you won't use me to bring people and he said about two in the morning he received this Call it what you will, you know, mystical assurance. Five people tomorrow night. Five people. I give them to you. (laughs) And uh, he said he got off his knees and it was done. He said he'd never had it before and not many times since. It was done. Five people were going to receive Jesus tomorrow night. So he walks in there and he announces that five people are going to receive Jesus tonight. God told him so. That's dangerous. You shouldn't do that. But he did it. And he preached and gave his invitation. Four people walked forward. He closed the service and turned them loose and just waited. And a person got partway home and turned around and came back. The fifth one turned around and came back. So here was my key question from my daddy. I said, why don't you pray like that all the time? 
Stay up till two in the morning wrestling with God. And you know what he said? I'd be dead. I'd be dead. Meaning, you know, when you pray from ten to two and sweat drops of blood and your heart is breaking and the emotions are so intense that you can hardly endure and you wonder if your whole life is you can't do that every night. You're not wired that way. You're not intended to be that that intense all the time. So I don't know for you. I think we have different gifts. I mean, that, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts of the Spirit, one of them's faith, one of them's miracles, one of them's healings, knowledge, prophecy. So some of you in this room might get that every other week. Might. I'll give you one this afternoon. Watch for it. Something like that. Now, I, I cannot point to one instance of that in my life. Just to encourage the rest of you. I, I mean, that, that is not, I mean, don't, don't say, well, if John doesn't get it, I'm not going to get it either. Don't say that. Um, because there may be weaknesses in me. There may be unbelief in me. There may be fears in me. There may be obstacles that I'm just going to be reproved for someday when my heart is laid bare before the judge of all the earth. I'd like to see why now. And, uh, I'm open to uh, that, but don't stop seeking him. So here's the point, back to your question. When I say you should always have faith, and I'm giving you, I'm reading my ideas into your head now. When you say you want faith in all, in all your praying, I mean something different than what my dad experienced that night. I mean the confidence God is hearing me. God loves me. God's going to do what's good for me. No doubt about it. Okay? Either he gives me what I'm asking or his delays are wise and for holy and good purposes. And you submit. You say, nevertheless, not my timing but thine. I mean, I don't know how to handle prayer any other way because, you know, if you... If you develop a nifty little program and says, okay, um, you get whatever you ask for if you ask according to the will of God. Premise one. Premise two, it's the will of God that everybody be saved. Premise three, I am now praying for my son Abraham's salvation. Premise four, he's going to be saved. That's baloney. Because otherwise I could pray for everybody and they'd be saved. Of course God desires all to be saved in one sense. And of course we should ask according to His will. But there is too much experience and too many other texts to be that simplistic about what faith really is. You don't run the world. God runs the world. Prayer is a mystery to me. Great mystery. Asking from your finite, sinful perspective that God would do things the way you think they should be done. Like, give us nine million dollars to tear this building down, build another one here and another one to decide it. We're going to tell God that's the way to run the world? I think not. But he tells us, ask me. Ask me. I love to do things for my children when they ask me. You have not because you ask not. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your private worldly passions. This is a very amazing thing. I call it weird. 
And when I spoke to perspectives class a few weeks ago, I said, prayer is one of the weirdest things in the world. And I would just give you a little tip here because you all, I presume you come to this thing because you, you care about these things. And if you care about them, you probably want to go out from here in the weeks and years to come and, and bless people with them. You want to bless them with your lives. You want your lives to count. People do not get enamored or helped by a Christianity that glosses over its weirdness and tries to make it easy and palatable and boring. Christianity comes alive to people when they see it as weird and you say, yeah, it's wildly weird. Wildly weird. It's so weird, it's true. In fact, one of the weirdest things about it is that it's true. And instead of running away from its weirdness, like prayer, prayer is one of the weirdest things of all, is to just push its weirdness. Text pointing to faith as the means of living in communion with God through His Word. So you, you, you did a good transition for us here. So now we're, we're gonna, I'm gonna argue that, uh, faith in those texts and in promises is a means of living in communion with God through His Word. Here's some texts that point to the role of faith in this regard. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So not I, but Christ lives. This is amazing here. No longer I lives. The life I live. So which is it? I no longer live or I now live? Who is this I? Who is this I? We're not living and we are living. We died and yet we're alive. We were crucified and now we live. We're living in the flesh, our ordinary... I don't think there's any negative to that flesh right there. Just in our ordinary body. And the way I live is by faith. Now that's the difference between the I who's living and the I who is no longer living. The no longer living I was the unbelieving I. The I that is now living is the believing I. Therefore, the, the channel or the mark or the median or the, the material of the life that the Holy Spirit imparts is faith. Faith is the, the channel through which the Holy Spirit is imparting life. Faith is the mark of the living person in communion with Christ. And the faith here is, is this second kind of utter dependence on God's being for you, loving you, caring for you, providing your needs as He judged needs. Galatians 5.5 5, For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. 
So how do we live now as we wait? It's not here yet fully. How do we wait? We wait through the Spirit by faith. I think those are correlatives. That is, they always go together. When you have faith, this was your question, is that the Spirit? Yes, it is. Through the Spirit, we have faith. And when we have faith, it is the Spirit working in and through that. Those two go together. And that's the way we wait for the hope of righteousness now. You could say, well, how do we live the Christian life? Do we live it by faith or do we live it by the Spirit? And the answer is yes. Because your, your job, your dependent job, is to trust the promises. And Owen is right, that when trust is rising in the promises, you know the Holy Spirit is there. He's doing that. Galatians 3.5 So then, does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the work of the law? No. Or by hearing with faith? So there it is, mates explicit. Here they're just side by side. Through the Spirit, by faith. Here they're not side by side. They're made instrument and end. Does He who provides you with the Spirit, how do you get a supply? Now this is present tense. Present tense. Ongoing action. Not gave you the Holy Spirit when you got converted. Evangelicals are real good at saying, when we're born again, we're born of the Spirit, and so we're indwelt by the Spirit from then on. True. Gloriously true. But we're not as good in realizing and living in this ongoing provision. The Holy Spirit is there day by day, hour by hour, for us. Now, how is He there? That's what He's asking. Does He do this ongoing provision by works of the law... And he means to say no to that. You you work your way to get the Spirit to be provided for you. You try to show yourself morally sufficient. You try to demonstrate that you are worthy of the Spirit. Use works like that? No. How? Well, then, what do you do? Is there anything you can do? Answer, hearing with faith. And the hearing brings in the word idea. And the faith, of course, the faith. Hearing the Word with faith is the way the Spirit is provided to you. This, this is so, so helpful because it gives you a concrete way to do your life. It tells you what your devotions are about in the morning. It tells you what Bible memory is about. It tells you what exhortation in the Word to another person is about. It's about the miracle of the provision of the Holy Spirit. You don't just say, oh, the Holy Spirit is the key to life, so let's close our Bibles and stop learning and stop studying and just call on the Holy Spirit to come and fall. That's not what it says. It says you want that to be provided? It's going to come through hearing with faith. And this hearing is the hearing of the gospel, the hearing of the Word of God with faith. So if you want somebody to have the Holy Spirit that you love, keep dishing them the Bible. Keep sending them promises. I just entered into my little, uh, and have one of these pocket calendars. And if you go in here to my calendar and tap 
uh, calendar, da-da-da-da, and go to Thursday morning, recurrent, 9 o'clock, you know what it's going to say? Write your sons. I have four sons. Talitha's too little. She doesn't read yet. But she'll be on there one day. Write your sons. They've all got email now. All four of them can hear me every day. One in Chicago, one in Worthington, one South Minneapolis, and one living at home with his computer eight feet from mine through the wall. I can get at my sons every day. Or every week. One of them I send more often than once a week. And what do I do? Do I just say, how's the weather? Aren't the wolves cool? Eleven in a row? That's not what I say. Maybe it's not eleven, I don't even know. I say, um, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I'm praying that you'll wait for her. The Christian one. Or another day, another thing. Another day, another thing. I come off my devotions and my communion with God asking, not just for settings like this where I speak to a hundred maybe, but for my boys, for my wife, for my Talitha. Today, what can I say? How can I be a means of providing them with the Holy Spirit? I pray, oh Spirit, come. Oh Spirit, illumine. Oh Spirit, preserve. Oh Spirit, fight. Oh Spirit, hold back from life-destroying sin. Oh Spirit, open their eyes. I don't leave it at that. Because the Bible says not to leave it at that. It says, how do you get that? You get it by hearing with faith. And so I send them something to hear, and then I pray down faith. And then, then it's in God's hands. It's in God's hands. Now, there are other things you can do. You can love them. You can sacrifice for them. You can show them Christ as well as talk Christ, which is also important. But I just want you to see that communing with the Holy Spirit is communing through faith over the Word. Through faith over the Word. That's what Owen said. I think that's what Paul is saying here in Galatians. Here's another illustration of it in Romans 5. This is so powerful, so good. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, don't miss this. I think when I got to this a couple of years ago in preaching through Romans, I think I preached three sermons on this verse right here. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Wow. Was given, yes, absolutely. There was a point where He came. When we were born of God, He came. But, uh, has been and is ongoing, poured out. The love of God is being poured out in our lives. The love of God. So, the question a lot of people have as Christians, and we ought to have it, is, is the love of God just a, just a fact that you're supposed to believe and say, well, I don't feel it, but the Bible says He loves me, and so I, I just take for granted He must love me. Is that all the Christian life is supposed to be? Well, be there if that's where you are. Be there. 
But you don't have to stay there because this text says the love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit means to to cause you to commune with, with God in His love for you experientially, not just cognitively alone, but in your heart. There's a, there's an outpouring of the love of God so that you, you sense being loved by God. You feel yourself embraced by God. The words, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, are actually applied to you by the Spirit and He, he draws you in and He says, you're mine. And you, you sense that very personal, intimate, you are mine, I love you, I gave my son for you in particular, I'm gonna fight for you, I'm gonna bring you home to heaven, I'm going to be your God forever and ever, and it's gonna get better and better, though I take you through deep waters here, I'm in charge and I love you and I'm going to be your God. And you sense that powerfully because the Holy Spirit is pouring it into your life. He's pouring it out in your heart. You're not just reading it on a page and saying, well, inferentially, there it is, Bible's true, I believe it, fact. Off we go to work. Yes, stay there and be there if that's where you are. But oh, ask for this. Press for this. Now, how does it work? Notice what he does as he goes on. Four. Little argument clause. This is a ground clause here. The Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our lives. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. Let's stop there. What's he doing? He just told us about an experiential thing that the Holy Spirit is doing right now in our hearts. And he grounds it with a historical fact. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died. That's 2,000 years ago. An outside us, non-experiential fact. The most important fact in history and in the universe. Christ died for the ungodly. Me. Now, how is that a support for this experience? Well, because he means for us to meditate on the finished historical work of Christ on the cross as that by which... Now, let's keep reading. By which what? Died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one, one someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates. Now, I'll put a little line into that because that's present tense and that is no accident. You would have expected demonstrated. Showed in, in the Greek. You would have expected the past tense there. Just like it says Christ died here. When he died, God demonstrated. But what it says is, but God demonstrates in an ongoing, continuous action way, his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Now he's back to past tense again. What's the interplay here? 
between past and present and present experience. The interplay is this. The gospel, the word of God revealed in the scriptures, is meant to carry historical reality. God once entered this world. If he hadn't entered the world and Christ didn't die and rise historically, our faith is vain. All the heebie-jeebie experiences we can have will do us no good whatsoever. But if Christ really became man, if he was really God, if he really died for sinners, if he really rose again, if he really reigns in heaven today, if he's really coming again, then to meditate on that, that word about that historical event, is the means by which the Holy Spirit demonstrates, now, present tense, the love of God and pours it into your life. Mm. I just, I just don't know how to make that feel to you how important that it is. Maybe a story. When I was in Germany studying 30 years ago or whenever it was, I went to a church, the only Baptist church there was in, in Munich, Germany. A million people, one Baptist church with about five little outpost preaching places. It was a pretty big church for them, 300, 400 people, great choir, and just wonderful people, a, a nursery. That's a big deal there because... Most of the state churches didn't have nurseries. I tried to go to the state church for a while, and we took our little six-month-old Karsten, and, and the associate pastor took us aside and said, you know, we don't usually bring babies to church. There are 60 people in this church, most of them old ladies. And my wife sat at the back with the baby, never made a peep. I said, well, what, what would you suggest? Is there a nursery? He said, well, what we usually suggest is that you take turns coming to church. And that's that's it. Yeah. <laughs> so we found a Baptist church, and uh, they had a, they had a nursery and they had a choir and they had they preached the gospel, which that church didn't either. And uh, one day, the Sunday maybe it was Easter. My memory might not be exactly accurate here. The Sunday before Easter, they let a woman give a testimony who was a Jehovah's Witness, formerly, until a week ago. And she stood up and with tears in her eyes, she said, On Good Friday, so it must have been Easter, this was now two days ago, I was ready to kill myself because of the hopelessness of feeling I could ever measure up in the system of works that I saw in Jehovah's Witnesses. Holding my magazines, putting in my hours, walking the neighborhoods, trying my best to be one of the 144,000 or whatever. And it was all over. And one of your women pointed her out, came to me, who knew me, and said, look, don't hurt yourself. May I suggest this? And then you call me. You call me if, if this doesn't work. I would like you to read tonight, before you go to sleep, the whole Gospel of Luke. Give yourself that chance. Read the whole Gospel of Luke tonight. And then, if that is not a place where you meet the true and living Christ, then we'll talk. And I won't, I'm not sure what I'll have to say to you, but don't hurt yourself till you call me. And she said, when I got to the cross and, and Gethsemane, and began to slowly, so I forget what time she said, was it was two or three in the morning, 
and slowly read my way through this man's sacrifice. This right here. Christ died for the ungodly. Heaven opened and I saw Christ. Not literally, I saw the guy. I saw grace. I saw the true meaning of the cross. I saw what it meant to have your sins forgiven and God accept you apart from works of the law. So God, at that moment, demonstrated to her, in her experience, and the love of God was poured out into her life. But the agent was the word, and behind the word, history, fact. So frankly, in my life, I am not very impressed by people who direct me away from the word to marvelous experiences. Every religion has marvelous experiences. It's frightening to read the miracles of Hinduism and the miracles of Buddhism. If you think that you're going to be a great Christian because you can do a miracle or two, you are very wrong. It's the Word of God opened by the Holy Spirit transforming sinners into holy people that is the great mark of authentic Christianity. So, texts pointing to faith as the means of living in communion with God. So communion with God happens here as the Holy Spirit pours out the Word of God into their lives as they, as they focus on historical reality, the death of Christ, mediated now presently by God, the Holy Spirit, into their, into their lives. So, communion with God is rooted in contemplating the Word of God with faith, especially the promises of His presence and help. Here's another quote from Owen. Let me give you the context here. He had just been talking about the beauties of Christ and the great work of Christ in His role as mediator between God and man. And now he says, What poor, low, perishing things do we spend our contemplations on? I got a a letter, and for all I know, the one who sent it to me may be in this room. I don't think so. I think she was from out of town. wouldn't matter. Um, She told me her story that in 1986, she came to this church as a student at the University of Minnesota, invited by a friend, She was in a campus ministry, came out of a good, solid Christian home. In her perspective now, legalistic to the core, she was. And she thought, oh, I don't like this John Piper. He's too emotional and uh, Christian hedonism sounds all wrong to me. So she never came back. Hasn't been back since, in fact, uh, for 14 years. And uh, she said that she got married kept on going with her disciplined way of Christian life, and then hit the wall, some marital problems, and her life absolutely dried up. And she said, for 12 years, I was absolutely addicted to soap operas. And I'd never anybody tell me that before. I just assume that's true. I don't know why they'd be on TV otherwise if there weren't an addiction, because they're so banal and you know, ugly and gross and disgusting and whatever. 
I mean, I, I think they are. At least at Pizza Hut they are. Um, this is the only time I ever see TV. And then she said somebody invited her into a Bible study two years ago to read Desiring God. That's the book I wrote about Christian hedonism. And she said, oh, no, this crazy quack Piper again with his hedonism stuff. She read the first two chapters by assignment, and she said, and this is her talking, she said, God put the thought in her head, what if this is true? What if God does mean to be pursued as our ultimate satisfaction? What if we should try to be delighted in him? What if this is our highest calling to enjoy God and not just work for God? And that's, that seed thought enabled her to keep reading. And she said, God turned me so upside down that I was able to stand back and look at my life and what I really delighted in and all I saw everywhere was idolatry. Idolatry in TV, idolatry in food, idolatry in family, idolatry everywhere. Because that's what she really loved. That's what she was really satisfied by. That's where she really got her joy, her kicks, her, her everything. And she was the most broken person ever was, she said. Repented profoundly. Began to set her face like flint to, to find satisfaction in God. And she said, these two years have been like heaven on earth. I'm not there and she said, I've decided to go. And now she goes, you know where she goes to church? Grace Richfield. She said she took, she heard us, we, that we were sending a whole slug of people down there. She drives from a city pretty far out. What poor, low, perishing things do we spend our contemplations on? Like soap operas. Or sports. I mean, it's okay to like sports, but not much. <laughs> Not much. Some of you young guys, grow out of it, okay? You know, it's a phase. And if you don't grow out of it, you'll remain an adolescent all your life. And, and you'll have substitute warfare. So that's what football is, right? It's just, and, and so is basketball nowadays. It didn't used to be, but it is now. It's, it's just warfare. And so guys who can't really go to war, they just have vicarious war. They have their armies and they play their little, they move little soldiers around. And you ever play army? You girls don't know what we're talking about here, probably, but excuse me, ladies, girls, when you were little, very stereotyped ideas I have here. But my little girl is so different from my boys, I can't believe it. I, I try to, I try to play with her like I played with them, and I'm having to learn from her how to play with her. I knew how to play with my boys. We had helicopters and bombs and you build a tower to knock it down. And everything's blowing up. And, and I, I thought, I thought we would, you know, do that. And she just wants to play people. She's, what would you like to do? Let's play people. Okay. And she opens her house. And she puts people around the table. What's going to happen here? Where's the bomb? You know, where are the guns? And you just, this, you, you, you get on that side of the table and, and, and we'll bring it. 
I'm learning. I'm trying to figure this out. Sports. Uh, don't. Yeah. Don't. Don't get too excited about sports. Or were we to have no advantage by this astonishing dispensation? That is. Were we to get no other benefit than its depths and glory from the mediatorial role of Jesus, beholding what Christ did on the cross and the resurrection, yet its excellency, glory, beauty, depths deserve the flower of our inquiries, the vigor of our spirits, the substance of our time. But when, with all, old-fashioned language, our life, our peace, our joy, our inheritance, our eternity, our all lies herein. So even if, if we didn't have all this, but what if all of this is in that mediatorial work of Christ? Shall not the thoughts of it always dwell in our hearts, always refresh and delight our souls? Now, let me just boil that down to plain, up-to-date English Aren't the beauty and the glory and the excellence and the depths of Jesus Christ and His work worthy of our dwelling on them and refreshing ourselves by them and delighting in them all the time rather than spending our contemplations on so much that is so low? And we all do this. We all do this. How much time do you spend on the crossword puzzle in the paper? How much time do you spend reading the comics in the paper? How much time do you spend going over the sports page? Or maybe you're a mutual funds person and you spend a half an hour analyzing that page. And, and then everything, and then you say, oh, I guess there's no time to read my Bible this morning. We are profoundly evil people. And thank goodness God is patient with us and merciful toward us that we are so bent towards the world and so bent away from the holy and the good and the beautiful and the glorious. I struggle with it all the time. So communion with God is rooted in contemplating the Word of God with faith, especially the promises of His presence and help. Let's see. And I have one last one last overhead here before we go to a new unit. That's a continuation of that sentence. Communion with God is responding with fitting affections and communications of our heart to God through the Spirit. He comes to us by His Word through faith. We render back to Him communications both intellectually and emotionally through prayer. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. The Spirit helps our praying. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Commune with God. Pray in the Spirit to God. Jude 1.20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just open the Word to you, it opens you to God and enables you to pray as you ought. And sometimes when He moves, there's such a liberty and a freedom in prayer, and other times it's a, it's a hard work because He suffers us to languish for a season. 
And lastly, Romans 8.26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how we ought to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So sometimes the Holy Spirit takes us in our great groaning, our great weakness, and our great confusion, and our worldliness, and all He produces in us is groanings. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. And God interprets those according to the Spirit's loving purpose for our lives.